Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Weekly Radio for another week. You're on 3CR, and you're with Jacob and Zane. Yeah. So in the sh- um, so we have a pretty packed program um, coming up today. Um, we're going to be ha- playing a pre-recorded interview that our other presenter Lali did with Sarah Alazar, who is an activist based in Pakistan, to talk about. Um, the recent Pakistani elections and kind of what they mean. Um, and also we'll be having an interview later on with Sabrina, who is an international student based in Bang- um, from Bangladesh, um, who'll be talking about the protests um, that have been happening in Bangladesh. They'll be happening at 7.45. Um, and at 8.10am, we'll be talking with Ed Aman um, about the new um, or sh- sort of national organisation that's sprung up called Disarm Universities. Radness. Um, we should probably just begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting to you today from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, <coughs> and sovereignty was, of course, never ceded. And uh, yeah, we'd just like to pay our respects to elders, past, present, and future. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. All right. Um, I think one. Um, I think. Yes. Um, well, I just wanted to talk about one thing, which there was a uh, Facebook update last night from Alex Batal, the Greens candidate uh, for what's uh, up until now being called the seat of Batman, the federal seat of Batman, which is um, going to be changed uh, as of the upcoming election to be called Cooper, because Batman was a genocidal arsehole. And, uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, Alex Batal has actually resigned from the Greens. So I've got a statement here from Alex Batal. It starts, For a long time, it's been my hope that the Greens' parliamentary presence would grow in the House of Representatives through the election of Greens MP for the seat of Cooper, previously Batman. Over almost 20 years, the hard work of Derebin... Yarra and Whittlesea Greens volunteers transformed our seat into one of the country's most marginal and built the Greens vote in the seat from single digits to 40% in this year's by-election. As a small but growing party, it was always going to be a hard ask to win a House of Rep seat, but I never expected that we'd face internal sabotage in the middle of our most winnable campaign, with some people choosing to anonymously... Uh, brief the Murdoch media and actively aid our opponents. The anonymous attacks on me and the handling of the complaints were both extremely damaging. I absolutely refute the allegations against me and it's deeply concerning to me that the Greens have processes that deny people the right to know um, 
or the, the right to respond to the details of uh, claims against them, if there were any details. It's a relief to me that people have been able to see through the accusations and media leaks and rely on their actual knowledge of me and my actions. I'm pleased that after the State Council spent a month considering the review panel's report into the events of the Batman by-election, it apologised to me and my family, noting that no findings were made against me. Three weeks ago it issued this resolution, and uh, it says, The party has recently completed a review into the 2018 Batman by-election and the handling of the complaint against Alex that was received in the weeks prior. Uh, the review identified deficiencies in the party's complaints handling processes. The party regrets the distress the handling of the complaint caused for Alex and her family. The party notes that no adverse findings were made against Alex Batal by any party process and that the complaint uh, is considered closed. Uh, I have decided to stand down as the candidate for Cooper at the next election after talking with my sons my husband and my dad. My decision is made in light of the chronic stress that events this year have caused me and my family and because of the threats, slurs and aggression that my sons and I have been, have been and continue to be exposed to. As the party has declined to take any action against individuals who seem determined to sabotage me and the party, I feel I have no choice but to stand down in an attempt to ensure the safety and well-being of myself and my family. I know that many members and supporters may be upset by my decision and that some of you will question it. I thank you all deeply for everything that you have given to advance the causes and values that we share. Uh, and it goes on, I, I also want to make sure my dear friend and local MP Lydia Thorpe remains the member for Northcote because she's doing such a stellar job. So, yeah... Um, Alex Patel uh, from the Greens is uh, stepping back and won't be recontesting the seat of what is now known as Cooper at the coming federal election. Mm. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a total shame because um, I think remember going thinking back back all the way to 2016. We'll think there was this optimistic hope that she would be um, the second federal um, Greens MP. Um, simply because in on the federal parliament there's only one um, there's only one MP which is um, federal MP which is Adam Bant, um, and the Greens have three state MPs in the in the state lower house. But yeah, it's just, it's just a real it's total um, shame, um, and yeah, um, wish Alex all the best in her future endeavours, which I'm sure she'll still contribute quite a lot um in terms of her activism and um her acti- um um and her support and her activism in the greens as well mm-hmm. um now the other new sort of the major kind of news story I want to talk about is um probably many listeners probably heard uh probably listened to well probably heard about the massive kind of backlash against sky news mm. um <laughs> for um and this is from we have an article in next week's Green Left Weekly written by Amber Am, Embry who covers this, and um, she writes here that you know going back um, to August fifth, um, Sky News presenter Adam Giles um, interviewed Blair Contrell, you know who. It's on the record for advocating that schools distribute copies of Adolf Hitler's main Mon Comp and erect images of Hitler, um, you know. In terms of the way Sky News framed this interview, they 
literally profiled Blair Contrell as an activist. Mm. Um, Just a garden variety of alt-right activist. Yes, yes. And the, and not once did they challenge his um, his far-right racist attitudes. And he, of course, ended the interview with wishing Contrell the best in his future endeavours. And, of course, this is... Um, as Amber points out, this is not the first for Sky News. I mean, they previously had they've had they've been normalising racist and far right attitudes for quite some time, and of course, this it seems this interview went too far um, in terms of the backlash. Um, the Victorian government has directed um, that Sky News no longer be broadcast at train stations. Um, former Labor Minister Craig Emerson stepped down as a Sky News commentator the day after the interview, stating that he would not remain on a TV show that thinks it's all right to wish a vile neo-Nazi and anti-Semite the best within his endeavours. Although that said, I mean... I, it's surprisingly that he didn't have a moral conscience when it came to, you know, speaking about offshore detention, which is a nuts thing that Sky News has been supporting for a while. And, of course, you know, but Sky News is also not the only ma- main um, news outlet. You know, Contrell has been interviewed on ABC's Four Corners, Triple J's Hack and Seven News. And I think one of the other one of the other issues that's, I mean, the backlash, the, the sort of... Um, Sky News has actually been quite upset about not being broadcast on um, public train stations anymore. Uh, in fact, one of their defences is, we were the only station that has banned Blair Contrell from appearing, which I think is a bit funny because they're the ones who let him on to begin with. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily a good... You know, they're making a big deal about how they banned him, but, well, they only banned him after the fact... They, after they interviewed him and gave him a, a national platform, and I guess there was a bit of a, a bit of a left wing kind of response um, to Sky News. Is you know, the Victorian socialists, um, for example, have condemned the Sky News interview as another dangerous step in the normalisation of the far right, who threatened the safety of migrants, Muslims, and basic democratic rights. And of course, it issued a bit of a challenge to the network to invite Stephen Jolly. Um, the Victorian Socialist League candidate, you know, to because ideally, you know, if 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 Sky News wants to give balance and you know give give balance to all the so-called extreme views in societies, well, why doesn't it give a platform to the far left equally as much as the far right? Well, mm. actually, that never happens. Yeah, because it's complete rubbish that it's fair and balanced. It's right wing, and uh, it'll give plenty of far right speakers. A platform and it won't give far left speakers platform, and uh, it's it's not alone in that. And I, I think it's it's times like this that it's interesting to note that Green Left Weekly has never had someone on um, on Q and A. Q and A has had all sorts of far right um, people on there. They have someone from the IPA like every second week virtually. Mm. And they've never had someone from Green Left Weekly, um, so. Yeah, this this idea of balance is rubbish, and the far left gets excluded from having a platform yeah. on these things. Well, we don't even necessarily we don't even have genuine kind of left wing voices represented. I mean, um, we never we, we never have a an active anti fascist activist who's active in campaigning against racism and fascism. Um, mm. you don't have you know we don't have. We never had when I mean I remember when um, Q and A was in Geelong. They didn't 
they didn't invite um, the current secretary of Geelong Trades Hall at the time, who was Tim Gooden, who's also um, known as a, quite a, a socialist activist, and we've had him on our program plenty of times. And um, uh, although that said, to give a bit of credit to Sky News recently, um, they did actually have um, Lily Rose Bell, who's a member of Socialist Alternative, on the on one of their shows. However, the context was a bit different. They didn't like. Because, you know, they invited Blair Contrell to give a bit of a voice and a platform views, and they didn't belittle him in any way. That's Whereas right. when they invited um, Lily, the whole purpose was to actually belittle her socialist views. Yeah, yeah, to have the whole panel attack her. And it's worth noting that she stood up to those attacks really well. She mm. held herself so well. Um it was impressive, actually. Yeah, I thought her responses were very impressive, actually, and I thought it was great that she was on the on Sky News to give you know to give a bit of a socialist voice on Sky News. But really, mm. the content, even though she was invited, we have to really. It's important to note that the context for yeah, yeah. What, where she was invited was completely different. Whereas, whenever a far right, you know, yeah, when, invited, when they, they're complete, they're not belittled in any way. They're not challenged for their views in any way. Mm. They just said, "Oh, yeah, they have." They have a point of view that we have to give a voice to. I don't know if it was Sky News or one of the other right-wing corporate media outlets, but they had someone from the uh, left renewal faction of the Greens on, Mm. and it was the same. They had, like, four speakers who were all like, oh, blah, 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 Stalin, blah, 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 you know, talking about... Stalinism and going, oh, if you're from left renewal, you want Stalinism and blah, blah, blah. Again, that speaker handled himself reasonably well after being accused of being Stalinists. But, uh, yeah, when have you when have you had Blair Cottrell or someone like that on those shows and had a panel of four people just lay into them about how they're trying to revive the legacy of, of Adolf Hitler and the, the fascists? Yeah. It's just completely. It's completely hypocritical. Mm. Um, another, I think, um, getting a bit of time to play our first interview of the program. So we'll just play a quick announcement, and then we'll go on to our fir- playing the pre-recording of our first interview of the program. Indeed, you do. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. All right, uh, coming up next, this is Screen Left Radio's Lalitha Chalia, and she is speaking with Sarah Elazar, who is a socialist activist from Pakistan, uh, about the political situation there. So, yeah, check it out. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for offering your talk to 3CR today. 
Thank you, Lalita, for having me on your talk show. Thank you. I know it's a long time since we had a chat, and given that Pakistan's just had its elections, and I guess we can talk about the fallout um, or even the build-up to the elections. Yeah, so um, uh, the build-up to the elections been around the question of involvement of the military establishment in engineering how polling is going to take place, what parties get to participate in the election, and that's sort of been the environment in which, uh, you know, like political parties were campaigning and trying to sort of appeal to various authorities to provide a level playing field. That was sort of the debate that was happening before the election. Uh, the largest party, the one that made the government in the previous um, tenure, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, uh, claimed that they did not have a level playing field in um, you know, participating in the election process. They claimed that the military establishment, the judiciary, were all out to support the Pakistan Tariq Saf, which is, you know, as you know, um, headed by Imran Khan, who yes. is probably <laughs> going to be the prime minister. He's going to be sworn in as the prime minister on August 15th. Mm. So it seems yeah. like for, for many decades, almost uh, soon after the um, uh, initial taking over from the British, the Pakistani government has been formed by um, army generals. Uh, but Ayub Khan. Ayub Khan, that's it, Ayub Khan. That's it. It's an ongoing story from then, would that be right? Yeah, it, I mean, it is an ongoing story. We've had more, uh, we've, you know, this is the, the second government in Pakistan's 70-year-old history that's seen a, a democratic transition, right? A peaceful democratic transition has not been toppled over by the judiciary or the military, and it's one government to another. That's never happened before, right? Mm. Um, it, it's a very patchy history. There's always been, because, you know, like, there are various powers that have corporate interests in this country, very basic corporate interests, and that's how it plays out with the military establishment. In, on the one hand, um, you know, various industrialists and their political parties on the other. So that's sort of been the history, and it's been a tussle of power between the two for the last 70 years. Hmm. And, and the thing is, uh, uh, Imran Khan was a, a relatively newcomer. He's been around just for 20 years compared to most of the other parties, including the um, uh, religious um, parties that have been around. So why is it that suddenly the, the military has swung its support behind Imran Khan? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that, that the support for Imran Khan is anything new. Hmm. Because if you look at how politics uh, in the 90s was developing in the country, it was mostly a two-party system with the Pakistan Muslim League and the Pakistan People's Party forming one government after the other. And sort of, you know, certain powers, bureaucrats, uh, military generals decided it was important to introduce a third force, a third party. And that's sort of the environment in which the PTI emerges. Um, I know that because of our reporting uh, around the emergence of the PTI in its beginning. Hmm. Um, so, so, you know, like there's always been a history to Imran Khan's rise because he, he was never a politician. He, his claim to fame was cricket and then building a hospital. Of course. Uh, it wasn't politics per se. But I would add on to that saying that it's, it, it would be highly unfair as well to say that this, you know, like, yeah, we, we agree that this was a very rigged and, you know, engineered election. But it also speaks volumes of the aspirations of 64% of the population of Pakistan, which is under the age of 30. And 
their disenchantment with you know like old political systems or political parties is sort of what you see uh you know like manifest itself in Imran Khan's victory and you know in PTI's uh, overwhelming majority in the parliament this time around so you think the youth actually boosted the votes for Imran Khan yeah i mean so Imran Khan has been around for 20 years but it was actually in 2011 when he managed to hold massive gatherings public shows in which you had concerts you had pe- you young people dancing dressing up you know various mascots party colors and all of that uh, and that was like that was when a lot of people in the country started talking about an awakening a youth awakening in which you know like i'm not like it wasn't progressive in any kind of way uh, <laughs> just a big up, party there was an overwhelming demand for change hmm. we don't know what that change is right we don't know what we're looking for we just know that we cannot you know continue surviving in this situation in the system that the old parties have set up so old politics is out and uh, you know change is the battle cry that is That's the cry it. but what is what is what is Imran Khan offering that is different from the old parties that's the key question here yeah, is that the monikers and the you know like slogans of um you know anti corruption change really it's it's very amorphous it's very ambiguous yes <laughs> they, you know, so the, their first and their 100 their 100 years uh, pro, 100 days program for the government includes um building it includes job creation it includes um building uh, sorry uh, planting trees which is fantastic <laughs> but i don't know how they're going to manage that they they claim they had a million uh, tree drive in khyber pakhtunkhwa which is where they had the government last um tenure but they only managed to complete like 20% hmm. of their target so i don't know like so you have all these promises imran khan's party has promised the moon to every single segment of the society there is for the migrant working class in say lahore of which i uh, am a part of as well right so mm-hmm. i come from a different city come here to work uh, have you know a salaried well paying job but you know most of the work you know like salaried class in lahore city is from other cities right mm-hmm. and a lot of them will talk to you about their issues and their problems around jobs and salaries and these are some of the you know like issues that your know, pti has kept you know it's completely um given space to i'd say and said and, and promised promised to deliver now what's what's interesting is that apart from imran khan every other person that he he surrounded within his party is actually do actually come from other political parties so they've all been in um government at some point or the other and they've all been tried and tested so we don't really know how they're planning on delivering anything that they've promised during my reporting in christian majority areas we had a lot of um pastors tell us that imran khan's promised um a lot for religious minorities and on the other hand he's going to far right religious gatherings and promising to strengthen blasphemy law so it's all very contradictory it's all very amorphous and ambiguous at this point um but uh, they'll have to deliver because they've raised bar for expectations higher than has been in the 2000s or the 90s at hmm. least. 
There are big expectations. I guess we should move on to the relationship Pakistan, the historical relationship uh, Pakistan has had with India. And, of course, the the um, confusing or the, the um, equation leading towards Kashmir. Uh, from what I understand, Nawab Sharif had wanted more trade partner in India rather than a, a country he wants to constantly be battling against. Whereas Imran Khan, what, what's he saying about that situation? Because that's an important yeah, point. So his, um, he addressed the question of uh, India and, and ties with India in his first, uh, in his victory speech, basically, in which he said that he has more friends in India than in any, anywhere else in the world. Mm. <laughs> right? And therefore, the country must strive to have, uh, must strive for like improved relationships, friendly relationships with India. Um, now, I don't, I mean, it's nice to say that. Yes. We're very happy that he thinks that way. Yeah. But, no idea how that's going to happen if it's the establishment's back that he's riding on, right? Mm. Because um, they've had historic interests in the area, and that's played out. Whether or not you know the democratic government is in place or not, we've seen Cargill happen, we've seen 65, yes. multiple incursions. Um, it doesn't matter who's in power. The military's going to go and do whatever they want to win it anyway. Mm. And... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, he's, he wants friendly relationships, but if he's going to try and assert himself, that's going to be a major challenge for him. Yes. So the, the relationship between Imran Khan and, and, and the military isn't very clear. Yeah, it's not very clear, to be honest. Cause, okay, he's been very critical of the war on terror, which is great. He's been very critical of drone attacks. He, you know, like did, did a huge march a few years ago against um, drone attacks. And that was really cool. He's, he's for negotiations with... Um, militants, terrorist groups. Oh, that's interesting to see how you, you know, how that plays out. But uh, at the same time, um, you know, he has massive establishment support. So, yeah, so it, it's it's a dodgy relationship. I, mm. Mm. I guess. Lastly, we we cannot go without addressing um, the fact that the left actually stood almost eighty, uh, fifty national and provincial seats from all over Pakistan. So only one person was elected, the Ali Wazir. <laughs> I think they were around 21. 21? Okay. Uh, across the country. But uh, we had massive victories for the left. So Ali Wazir and Mohsen Dawar, both with the Pashtun Tahafiz movement, hmm. won uh, the MNA, the National Assembly seats uh, from South Waziristan and the Shangla area as well. And that was really, really amazing. That was so good. Uh, for uh, That bodes really well hmm. for the movement here because... Um, I personally feel that the left was very visible in this particular election, say, compared to 2013 and 2008. We've had left candidates come and contest elections, but we've never seen, uh, you know, the media or the people treat them like, or, or you know, even, even view them as a positive, viable alternative, mm. a, a, a candidate that could win, a horse you could bet on. You know what I mean? Yeah. But this time around, we had uh, very visible, very vibrant candidates come out talking about social justice, economic justice, uh, ethno-political justice. And we had Ali Wazir and Mohsen Dawar win the election. And that's fantastic news uh, for the left in the country. So that's a good base. So, so, so the, the left has been able to establish some sort of a base in these elections. Yeah, yeah. And they've decided to stay independent. Okay, so that's good. That's good that the the left is is um, now finding its fate after all these years of battling um, against so much, so many odds. 
it's unbelievable how the left actually has survived all this against the religious um, attacks and so on. And the right wing's been, uh, having been very strong as well. So in overall, so on. election was extremely visible. And we're talking fascist right-wing political parties mm. uh, that emerged uh, in the aftermath of the shooting, the killing of uh, Punjab Governor Salman Taseer in 2011 by his guard, Mumtaz Kadri. Mm. Uh, allegedly for saying, for terming the blasphemy law a black law. Mm. And so the Tariq al uh, this this political party emerges out of, um, you know, that episode and they view Mumtaz Kadri as their hero. And they've taken, ba- you know, they, they're, he's on their banners, he's everywhere. And this is the political party that stood number, that, <laughs> that came second in many important constituencies. Mm. They got a lot of seats. I mean, they didn't do, they did not perform well electorally in terms of the results that they produced. Mm-hmm. However, in terms of the areas and the narrative that they spread, and the seed of hatred that they've planted, the fact that they've stood second, gone like they've been runners, are runners up in um, Liari, in uh, in defense, Lahore, NA one three one. I mean, they're everywhere in Pasroor, in Narawat, all over the country. They fielded uh, candidates in eighty seven percent constituencies, mm. and they were they ran very tight campaigns. So it was really shocking how such a violent fascist party manages to mobilize and gain so much support within a few months only. So this party was registered last year. And if Imran Khan's been around for 20, I mean, this party hasn't been around for even 20 years. Yes. And they're already <laughs> up in the election. Mm. It's a scary Mm. And the, the Bhutto family, they have emerged as well and they've won um, a few seats under the young leadership of Bilawal Bhutto. Yeah, but Bilawal Bhutto lost from the one seat that the, that their family has never lost in their entire history, and that's in Liari, Karachi. Mm. Uh, this part of Karachi that's uh, suffered some of the worst uh, attacks and gang violence um, since the 90s, I'd wow. say. Mm. And um, Liari voted for change. Once again, It's so, so what people are voting for exactly not many are sure. Yeah. Not many know what this change entails. But they just don't want the same faces. They don't want the same politics. There's mm. a there's an overwhelming realization that the system has failed the majority. Mm. Well, it's yeah. a good feeling. It seems to be an international phenomenon. In, in Malaysia, the similar things happen too. And they also have got the 100-day programs. We are waiting to see what they'll achieve. But that's great. Yeah. It's good to hear that the left is, has done so well. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. That's very kind of you. It's lovely talking. So it's you always s- a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Alrighty. Uh, yes. Green Left Radio's Lalitha Chalia there. Speaking with Sarah Elazar from Pakistan. And yes, yeah, Sarah is a socialist activist and talking obviously about the gains for the left in the recent elections and the election of uh, Imran Khan's party uh, to the to the national government of Pakistan, which is a big shift. Exactly what sort of shift it remains to be seen, but uh, it's a big shift. All right, what's uh, what's happening? We'll just play a quick announcement and we'll get our next, um, some articles from Green Left Weekly prepared. <clears throat> 
Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. All right. You're on Green Left Radio. It is uh, 7.34. Here with Jacob and Zane. Yeah, so um, I guess I want to um, read a bit of a story from um, the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, and this is um, just a bit of a reflection on a campaign um, in Sydney um, around deaths in custody of um, Aboriginal um, of Aboriginal people. Um, and so this is just about the article is about winning justice um, for the young Aboriginal man David Dungay um, Junior, who died on December twenty ninth, two thousand fifteen, after pleading for his life in the mental health wing of Sydney's Long Bay Jail. And to give a bit of background, um, the 26-year-old um, Don Hooty man from Kempsey, a known diabetic, suffered a cardiac arrest when um, when he was pinned down by four members of the prison's immediate action team for refusing to stop eating biscuits and was ejected with two strong sedatives. And he, then he was due to be he was due to be released three weeks later. And I think, in terms of you know coming out of his um, his death, um, it took the family um, and and supporters two and a half years to rest a coronal inquiry inquiry from the government, uh, originally scheduled for the small coronal court in um, Glebe. It was moved to Downing Centre um, local court to accommodate the large numbers of fr- and family, friends, supporters, and activists. And there was a, this two week, the two week inquest um, held from July 16th to the 27th mirrored hundreds of other um, inquiries into the deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in custody. And the court was shown the hiring footage of David being brutalised, begging for his life and dying. And family members were, and supporters were warned before the video footage of his death. Um, many left the room. And of course, you know, on the first day of the inquiry, a well-intended da- justice for David action put the coronal system on notice. Um, Don Gay's mother, Latoni Don Gay, told Greenleaf Weekly, "We have got a lot of help from all my supporters and my family, and from the strength of us, we are going to get justice." I thank you for all the rallies we that we have pushed this far. Um, Indigenous um, Social Justice Association's Rao Bussi called for supporters to join the family in court and to donate to the family. Greens MP David Shoebridge addressed the crowd, urging people who wish to donate to do Don Gay's family to do so through GoFundMe. And you know, one of the, um, and I guess I think the I think that sort of you know Don Gay kind of joins uh, the growing list of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people who have died one. While under the watch of the modern Australian police and the prison system, I mean their names are like Mr. Some of their names are Mrs. Dray, T.J. Hickey, Jaden Bennell, Eric Whittaker, and Rebecca Maher, and so on. And so, I think this is the kind of reflection of the sort of ongoing, even though you know this, there's such injustice. Um, towards these deaths in custody, the fact is that there is a campaign and that there are people standing up and saying that you know this is this is not. This is not good, um, and that this is an injustice, and we demand justice. Mm. Um, now, another article I kind of want to read is um, about people um, about um, the opposition to corporate pay um, CEO pay surges, 
And Jim McElroy writes here that, you know, that corporate CEO salaries have hit record high levels over the past year. And this is according to a report um, um, from the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. You know, the report shows that um, that comp- pay for company bosses has reached its highest level for 17 years thanks to persistent and increasing bonus payments. And I think, you know, another sort of pay, you know, the, another um, very highly pay, you know, people that seem to – another group of a profession that also seems to get – um, increased pay every year are politicians. Um, and of course, um, ACSI Chief Executive Lewis Davidson told ABC on July 17th the results show CEOs and company boards were out of touch with community standards, especially given the federal government's concerted campaign for um, corporate tax types, tax cuts, I mean. And at a time when public trust in business is at a low EB and wage growth is weak, Board decisions to pay large bonuses just for hitting budget targets rather than exceptional performance are especially tone deaf. And of course, the survey said that the median pay for ASX 100 chief executives rose 12.4% to 4.36 million and rocketed by 2.2.1% to 1.676 million for ASX 101 to 200 company bosses. And, and you know, one of the... One, um, some of the kind of response, the political kind of responses, you know, in the US, you know, Bloomberg Billionaires Index announced on July 16th that Amazon head Jeff Bezos has amassed a personal fortune of more than $150 billion, and he is now the richest plutocrat in modern history. And, of course, Senator Bernie Sanders invited the CEOs of Amazon, Walmart, McDonald's and Disney to meet their employees for a live stream discussion saying, I really hope the CEOs have a, the guts to sit on a panel with their own employees and explain why it's acceptable that they receive huge compensation Packages while their own workers, uh, very own workers, are struggling to put food on the table. And interesting enough, none of the CEOs showed up to this challenge. Uh, what a surprise! And you know, in in Australia, these massive um, handouts to CEOs occur while the crimes and injustices of the big banks are being exposed in the Banking Royal Commission. Um, wage growth for workers. Um, for ordinary workers has hit record lows, wage theft by companies is rampant, and of course the Rentals Association wants to freeze um, the minimum wage. And, you know, on the other side of it, I think the the main, you know, the public kind of response um, and opinion on this is that, you know, is that the Australian Institute showed that 80% of the, the public um, believe that the nation's chief executives are paid too much, and 75% say strict limits should be placed on CEO pay, and almost 80% supported making companies pay tax on very large payments, such as bonuses. And, you know, the kind of end... Jim kind of ends this article that, you know, the the response that we have to have to, you know, these increasing um, pay um, rises to CEOs and other corporate bosses is, you know, we need to actually... It's time to launch a major labour movement and a community campaign to make the more major corporations and their executives pay their full share of tax. Um, so, yeah, make the rich pay. <laughs> Word. And this ties in. There's been a bit of a grassroots movement by some trade union activists calling for the right to strike. And I think it's uh, intrinsically linked because the, uh, the time when we had the peak level of 
the peak share of national wealth going to workers' salaries as opposed to corporate profits also just so happened to be the time when we had peak union density and the peak number of strike days per year, and that was in the mid-1970s. So if we want to wrest some of that wealth from capital back towards labour, or indeed open the way to a socialist transformation of society, we've got to bring back the right to strike. So mm. let's do it. And um, I just want to change the, um, the focus to um, on the environment. And um, Susan Price here wrote an article... Um, probably people have been um, hearing the news stories about um, how we um, about the drought. Um, there was a confirmation that 100% of New South Wales is now officially in drought, and it is clear um, as Susan and this is what Susan is writing here that um, the federal government's climate change denial is putting agriculture and planet at risk, and. Yeah, and interesting enough, some of the responses. So the fe- the response from the agricultural minister um, David Littleproud reckons it's a big call to say that the drought ravaging large parts of the country is linked to human induced climate change. Um, you know, you know, and on and on AB and National Party um, Senator. Barnaby Joyce, who represents the drought-sticking region of New England, told Sky News that same day that the drought is a natural disaster and that lowering emissions will have no effect on climate change. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. And he said, do you honestly believe what we do in in Canberra is, is going to change the climate? It's not. And, of course... <laughs> As this kind of denialism is just the kind of latest examples of the government's refusal to take serious action on climate change, its alignment with big fossil fuel and mining interests means it prefers to fiddle around while Australia burns. And I think, a lot, you know, climate change knows no bat orders. What Australia is experiencing is part of a global crisis. You know, people are dying in record numbers in heat waves in Japan, Canada and parts of Europe. Um, California is experiencing wildfires so intense that they have created their own weather events, including tornadoes. Um, devastating fires are destroying lives and land across parts of Europe and burning as far as north as the Arctic Circle. And, a, you know, and in current trends, the world may face catastrophic warning within a generation or two with large parts of the planet becoming inhabitable and major food growing regions facing drought crisis. Mm. So yeah, that's really sort of the current kind of situation and, and really sort of Susan ends here that you know we need to make some the only way is we, could, we need to make we need to break away from capitalism and make some kind of radical shift away because you know, these massive these heat waves, the droughts, you know, it's all ultimately linked um, to human induced climate change. Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, the the inner circle of the um, coalition government. They're all still pushing this line that oh yeah, it's not nothing to do with climate change. But on the ground, I think increasing numbers of farmers are, are speaking out against this, and and that they are drawing those links. And so this is really, I think that the 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 medium term trend here is going to be a a kind of a deepening rift between some of the National Party base in rural Australia who recognise that climate change is a real thing and is damaging um, farming and, and, and it's a really serious and scary and dangerous problem versus the inner circle 
of the Liberal National Party who want to be all chummy with coal and, oh, no, no, nothing's wrong here. It's not. It's just a natural disaster. I think that rift is going to deepen. Um, the national president of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson, she is from the Liverpool Plains and was uh, quite active in the campaign to stop coal mining in the in the fertile Liverpool Plains. Uh, I heard someone on Triple J the other afternoon who was a nationals, like a young nationals member. She was very open about the link between climate change and drought, and she kind of said, "Oh well," she she she's almost basically saying it's kind of like a one-party state here in rural Australia. So if you want to change anything, you've got to get involved with the nationals. Uh, but I believe in climate change, and I think we need to do something about it. And uh, I, I saw a thing going around Facebook the other day as well. It was an interview with a, a young farmer. And again, he was really talking about how climate change is, you know, a big factor in this m- massive drought in New South Wales. So I think going forward, there's going to be a, a rupture and that's going to create openings if if progressives and Greens and environmentalists and, and lefties in the cities can link up with farmers there's there's potential there to create a a political shift because uh, as we know we're all about establishing a workers and farmers government mm. <laughs> so right. it's got to be the end game all right so um we're getting ready we'll get ready for our next interview on the program um just got to um, play a few announcements quickly to um and while we get that sorted yeah yeah Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to 3CR, and on the line with us this morning, we have got uh, Sabrina Saeed, who is an international student at the University of Newcastle. Sabrina is from Bangladesh, and yeah, she's going to talk to us about political developments in Bangladesh. Welcome. So just a bit of a background, um, probably some listeners have probably um, heard that there's been some massive kind of student protests and kind of a lot of police repression of these protests. Um, and so I guess, um, Sabrina, I mean, the first kind of question is I want to, um, what can you tell us about the current situation in terms of these protests by students in Bangladesh? Thank you. Um, the protest initiated by students of Ramizuddin Cantonment School and College after two of their classmates were killed by speeding bus on July 29 in Dhaka Yarba Road. The, that protest was uh, very uh, innovative. They are innovative in that way that protesters stopped vehicles, checked driver's documents and license, and forced traffic rules especially keeping to one lane and figured out emergency lane for ambulance. All these are very rare experiences for Dhaka citizens. It was a peaceful protest by school students that had been attacked by the government. Government people meant police. After initial attack, uh, social media was flooded with pictures and videos of the incident and gained greater support from the mass people. And later, university students declared solidarity with the protesters and joined the protest. So mm. it was the background of the protest. Yeah. So what is um what is sort of the political background of of you know these protests had to come somewhere? So what is sort of the political kind of background that led to some of these protests? 
Okay, uh, political background means uh, figured out when Shahjahan Khan, the shipping minister, as well as the president of Heavy Vehicles Labourers Federation, he ridiculed the students' movement and their demand for road safety. Also insulted the memory of two students by saying that 33 people died in one accident in our neighbour country. So here it is only two students in a smiling face. This actually triggered the involvement of majority students all around the Dhaka. Though several ministers quoting, the prime minister assured the protesters that all their demands have been principally agreed by the government and they will take necessary action to execute those. But a recent memory of broken promise from the prime minister on quota reform movement. I just want to uh, say about one line, quota reform movement, which took place in April by university students to reform the public services recruitment system made the protest. This time, the Prime Minister made some promises and later on to broke that. So this made the protesting students dubious about the assurance. And after the police and ruling party sponsored violence, students remain to be convinced that they have seen the last of human rights violations, disregarded for child safety, denial of freedom of expression, and abuse of power. And um, what... Um, what are, can you tell us a bit more specifically, kind of like, you know, what are sort of um, the demands of the protesters? You, I mean, you mentioned them before, but I kind of want to hear kind of in more detail about what okay. are these protesters demanding? Yeah. Uh, the It was nine points demand uh, that has been published in several newspaper, which is the first point was reckless drivers should receive capital punishment and provision for such punishment should be incorporated into the relevant act. Two was shipping minister Shah Jahan Khan must withdraw his statements and apologize to the student. A portion of protester also demand his resignation. Point three was construction of foot over breeze or alternative arrangement to ensure safety for students' movement at the spot of accident uh, and construction must start within seven days. For setting up speeding breakers in every accident on roads. By government has to take the responsibilities of the students killed or injured in road accident. Seven, students should be allowed to pay discounted fares in every part of the country, including Dhaka. Eight, vehicles must not be allowed on the street without fitness certificate and drivers must not drive without license and update paperwork. And the last one is uh, was uh, no bus can take ex- excess passengers. Yeah. These were nine points um, demand by the board. Yeah, and um, the, the next kind of question I want to ask is: um, What has been the kind of scale of the repression by the police towards these protests? Because, um, from my understanding, the situation there is quite intense. Yeah, uh, as the government lost the control when the university students joined, they lost the control of the situation. So they accused the students uh, for vandalism closed school and colleges and mobilized their police who cracked down on the young protester with baton, rubber bullets, tear gas, and water cannon. The police also allowed the government party supporters with helmet and activists brutal, who brutally attacking on the protester with bamboo stick, rods, and local matches. Hundreds were injured, female protesters were sexually harassed, and journalists and uh, the mass people were beaten up and arrested for taking photos or recording videos. 
One of the renowned photojournalists, um, you know, that Shahid al-Alam was arrested for making provocative comments in al Jazeera and placed on seven-day remand. Later, High Court suspended remand, but he is not released yet. Police also detained a handful number of university students. Among them, charges have been filed against 22 students, and their remand has been granted. Yes, and uh, this process is still going on arresting people and judges on them, yeah. All right. Um, the, other, the next question I wanted to ask is sort of what has been kind of like the response um, of the local Bangladesh community um, in Australia and sort of what kind of solidarity kind of actions have been organised? Okay. Um, in Australia, uh, initially I found that they started talking to social media because uh, it's difficult to understand what is happening there and which is right, uh, which news is right and which is news is not right. Difficult to understand, especially in the Facebook or Twitter. But they started talking through social media like Facebook, Twitter, and inbox message and everything. Later, they organized in uh, in Newcastle and Sydney. I heard that I saw uh, the rally meetings organized in human chains in their local area to declare the solidarity with the protesters. Many of them communicated Australian media people for international coverage. I think citizens of Bangladesh from every part of the world tried their best to discourage the government for being violent. Yeah. Yeah. And um I'll ask for you um I'll ask from your final comment um soon, but um Zane just had a bit um other programmer has just a bit of a qu- um, sort of question that's a bit of a side question, um but you probably would know a bit about it. Yeah, Sabrina, I was just wondering because in the news this week there's been a lot of coverage about an attack on a Muslim student at the University of Newcastle and I was just wondering what your perception is on the ground there. Um have you been? Have you actually experienced racism while studying at Newcastle Uni? And um, what is there much talk amongst students about a response to this uh, violent attack? Okay, uh, I'm not sure about that. Why they attacked this small stream students? But in University of Newcastle, I never faced that, or maybe I don't know about because it's just ten months I'm here. And but I heard from several people that there is some racism or sexism in Australia is happening. But I think the government is pretty aware about that, and they take necessary action when they heard about all this incident. But I don't know about the recent accident. What I heard about this uh, attack, but what's the background of this attack? I don't know actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, no problem. Okay. Um, the, I guess uh, um, we can kind of close up the interview now. But, guess do you have any kind of final comments you would like to kind of make um, about this whole situation, in Bangladesh? Um, and and is there, is there anything um, anything you can point to in terms of finding more information about what's happening? Uh, the final government, I must say, the government should take it seriously, and they need to stop all this violence, and they need to. Uh, uh, they need to release the students and the photojournalists and everything. And unfortunately, the Facebook is now in under control by the government, so we can't see everything. So we need to call at our home place to know about what's happening now. So this is my final comment. Uh, this government, government of Bangladesh, needs to stop the violence. Yeah.
Yeah. Thank you. Hi, thank you um, very much, um, Sabrina, um, for talking to us, and um, yeah, wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, Sabrina Saida, uh, international student from the University of Newcastle, telling us a bit about her home country of Bangladesh and the uh, yeah pretty pretty intense uh, student protests there and the, and the violent repression from uh, government forces and and uh, vigilantes. All right, we'll play a, a few announcements and then we'll move on to the activist calendar. Frickin' A, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, coming up soon. Check it out. Yeah, well, just one thing. Um, that's the, actually the first announcement on the activist calendar, um, the Anarchist Book Fair. So as you probably heard in that announcement, it's happening from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, but just one thing to note about it is um, the Anarchist Book Fair is actually more than just a book fair. Um, it's actually can be actually almost considered a bit more of a conference or a seminar. So there'll be actually um, various workshops that are going to be happening on different kind of political subjects. I mean, one of them is about how anarchists relate to the Change the Rules campaign. I think there's something on education. Um, there's something on Aboriginal rights. Um, so, yeah, just check the Anarchist Book Fair um, on Facebook um, to get a bit of an idea of what they have on the agenda because, um, yeah, they do actually have more than just books. Um, also happening, there'll be an after party for the Anarchist Book Fair, which will be the where a warehouse fundraiser for grandmothers against removal um, and w- removals, which um, they launched recently, joining a national network fighting to keep their kids f- with families. You know, Aboriginal children are being removed from their families at rates higher than during the stolen generations, and so that's going to be happening at seven pm on Saturday, August eleventh, at two one five Albion Street in Brunswick. Um, on Sunday, August the twelfth, um, there'll be a Tulanga Langi Forest Day of Action. Tulangi is a home to the tallest flowering tree on earth, Regan Lipis oh, Mountain Ash, a wet, a wet forest home to unique um, and gorgeous wildlife. And and currently, the future of Tulangi a Langi is being shopped and shipped away on a daily basis and is being done in the name of paper. So that'll be at 11am at Tanglefoot Picnic Area, Celia Creek Road and Tolangi. And that's hosted by the Tolangi Forest Protection Group. Um, on Tuesday, next Tuesday, August 14th, um, the Cornell West speaks, polarised, with her focus on justice and equality. Cornell West provides a voice that stands out in both volume and content. His goal with this tour is to extend his influence to Australian values and bring about a global consciousness in line with the legacy of Martin Luther King. So that'll be at 7pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. On Thursday, August the 16th, um, there'll be a rally to save community health, mental health. Um, community mental health services in Victoria are in crisis. The state government has ripped $75 million from the sector. In 2014, it was decided that this funding would be transferred into the NDIS. The problem is that 91% of Victorians with severe mental health needs will not be eligible for the NDIS, as well as the massive gap for mental health service users. This will lead to more than a 1,000 skilled and experienced staff losing their jobs. And so it'll be at 11am at 46 real. Street, Port Melbourne, and it's organised by the Australian Services Union. Um, this is a film screen that I 
I'm pretty sure might be actually part of um, the Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, so the film is called Witches and Faggots, Dykes and Pofters, and it's an iconic um, yet rarely, rarely, rarely seen Australian documentary about the gay civil rights movement. Um, it's restored to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Lungle Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. So that'll be at 6.30pm at the Forum Theatre, but I think you... Would should check the Melbourne International Film Festival um, to get the book ticket. Um, and now, while we're talking about the Melbourne International Film Festival, there are actually a number of interesting kind of films. Um, can't really name not the two I heard, but there, if you look for their program, there's a lot of um, different films around, um, you know, progressive um, um, issues or films that are just about the marginalised voices in society. Um, what's significant about the program this year is there's a bit of an African current, so they're, they're showing a number of old um, African films. Um, there's a number of uh, there's a lot of films from the Middle East, um, etc. Um, and I think what what's also interesting is someone uh, who is a bit of a film buff. Um, one of the things about Melbourne International Film Festival I've noticed um, that's quite striking compared to the first year I went. The first year I went was back in 2013. That's when I started going to Melbourne International Film Festival. I would say this year the the majority of films I've seen have actually all been directed by women. Or and there's a number of um, people of color um, directed films as well. Well, obviously there is at every Melbourne International Film Festival, obviously because internationally it's mm. supposed to cover a broad spectrum of the international scene. But the fact that um, there's that at least fifty fifty um, percent of the films are directed by women that I've seen is actually a big step forward, I think, from the film industry because it's been really been an industry that's been dominated entire well. Not, it's been the direct um, film directors have been dominated entirely by men. <clears throat> yeah, good to see. All right, so the next thing um, on to announce is there'll be a book launch. Um, the far left since um, in Australia since um, 1945, um, which is going to be at the Iron Potter Museum of Art at Melbourne University, Friday, August the 24th. Um, the Victorian Socialists will be having their manifesto launch on August the 24th at 6:30 p.m. with bar rabble at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, on Saturday, the August the 25th. Um, N- n- notorious anti-feminist, racist, and conservative figure Sydney Watson has um, organised a march for men, um, a rally for right-wing anti-feminists to come together and take to the streets of Melbourne. You know, this march for men gives a platform to racist, sexist, and misogynists to continue pushing harmful rhetoric about the feminist movement and its aims to achieve gender equality. So there'll be a counter-protest on August 25th and to say no to sexism in Australia. So they'll be at 1pm at the Federation Square in the city. Um... On Tuesday, August the 28th, there'll be a public forum organised by Green Left Weekly, um, Hot, 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 Fighting for Climate Justice. A panel of activists look at how rested interests are stopping the remedies to address climate change and how we need to fight back. Um, so they'll be happening at um, August 28th, 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, which is Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Um, there'll be public meeting also happening on that day on Tuesday, August the 28th. Um, digital tech for planet and people rather than privilege. Um, it features Lizzie O'Shea. Um, and they'll be at 7pm at the New International Bookshop in um, the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. On Wednesday, August the 29th, there'll be a public meeting organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, the case to bring them here and that will feature... Um, 
Nick, um, Nick McKim, Green Centre and Spokesperson for Immigration and Justice, and Abdul Aziz Adam, a Sudanese, Sudanese refugee who was detained on Manus for five years, and one of the leaders of the struggle for freedom on Manus live via Skype. So I'll be at 6.30pm at the ANMF, 535 Elizabeth Street in the Sea, hosted by RAC. On Friday, September the 7th, there'll be a protest against Najat... Nigel Farage, um, and they'll be at 6pm at the Crown Casino, Friday, September 7th. There'll also be a public meeting, an evening with Chelsea Manning, um, 7pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. It's a bit um, interesting. Those, um, those events are literally happening right next to each other because the Melbourne Convention Centre is um, is right next to Crown Casino. Um, so it's possibly possible that you might be able to go to both events at the same time or... <laughs> Travel from one to the other. <laughs> um, on Tuesday, September the 11th, there'll be a public meeting, the Many Socialisms of Ernie Lane, um, an attempt to make sense of Australian pre-Bolshevik socialism by examining the ideological evolution of pioneer and radical Ernest Henry Lane. And that'll be at the New International Bookshop, Tuesday, September 11th, um, at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, and I think, yeah, that's um, pretty much it. Um, for the activist calendar, um, so maybe we'll play our our uh, uh, announcement and then get ready for our third and final interview for the program. Right on. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society. And I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. All right, um, on the line we have Ed Aman, um, who is a student activist um, based in Sydney, um, who is sort of one of the people, I think, who was sort of responsible for starting up um, Disarm Universities. Um, Disarm Universities is a kind of a new kind of national kind of student activist kind of organisation that has kind of been set up to bring attention um, to... Um, the, the, the deals that universities make um, with weapons manufacturers such as Lockheed Martin um, and trying to b- put a bit of a kind of national framework to, you know, um, build um, kind of the, the aim of building awareness uh, for universities to campaign in their own campuses um, to bring attention to, the, to these weapon deals and then attempt to Dis, well, disarm them literally by calling on these universities to break um, away from these weapons va- deals from weapons manufacturers. Um, so, Ed, um, what can you tell us about sort of the background um, to how disarm universities um, started and we can work from there? Yeah, so it was it was probably about six to eight months ago where a few of us got together and and sort of noticed a concerning trend of weapons companies increasing their presence at universities nationally. And so we saw this happening from recruitment events to research partnerships, 
in investment portfolios and even with governance where, where mem- some members of Chancery are actually on the board of, of weapons companies. And so we, we sort of got together and, and decided that, you know, while on the brink of climate change and when, when there's esca- escalating military tensions, it's really hard to, to sort of to pick a target in, in the sort of indu- like military industrial complex. And we saw this was a really clear way where we could see a, a huge impact being made. And, and so not only is the, like, the war trade benefiting from, from these sorts of partnerships where they're, they're sort of banking on this research that they're getting from universities, but it's also compromising our universities with research integrity and our ability to advocate for peace and justice. And so those sorts of things led us to, to draw on a lot, of, a lot of campaigns in the past where we can set up a, a national grassroots network where the, the framework is... is a whole bunch of autonomous groups which are, which are being inspired by each other, which are being geared up with information and able to take to take yeah inspired action and and target them where where they're very susceptible like these these weapons companies are, are really making themselves comfortable with um, yeah with all the all the um, the choices they're able to make and so and so it's it's still in the the early stages of the campaign where we're we're getting getting groups together at universities to launch launch campaigns and that sort of thing. Mm. But there's really a lot of potential with, um, yeah, moving forward. Yeah. So how many, um, um, what are sort of the statistics, how many kind of groups have been formed on universities um, so far? And um, has there been much progress with some of these campaigns as they're going? Yeah, I know it's in the early stage, but has, so has there been much score of progress in terms of putting the pressure on universities? Yeah, so so far there's there's been at least 10 university groups set up and launched. And, and some of them have been already holding actions. We've we've seen the at the University of Sydney there was a banner drop at a at a graduation ceremony, where someone dropped a banner saying hashtag disarm Yusin, and and that was right in front of the chancery. So that was really powerful. That one. We've also seen actions at University of Melbourne where they where they shut down the entire university admin building over ties to Lockheed Martin. Um, UQ had a had a, a rally at a. Um, an event that was that was launching this building that was going to be ne- named after Dow Chemicals, mm. and so that that related to to the militarisation of the university as well. So what you see is there's also a lot of broad ta- tactics and targets, and so gearing up these these autonomous groups with with the information on that and 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 giving them sort of inspiration that 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 they need to to, to take action where where they see. A, um, a winnable target. So. Yeah. So, what is the t- um, so as a kind of national kind of grassroots um, sort of um, national front? Sort of what is sort of what um, what is kind of the national kind of support and infrastructure that you give to some of these um, local groups that are forming in universities? Yeah. So we've we've got a, um, a contact list which is building which which we which we grow through social media on our Facebook and Twitter. Where there's a little list you can, like a link you can click on to, to sign up, and that way we can we can link all the people that are at the same university together for when they when they're meeting or, or when, so that they can start meeting, and and get get um, staff, alumni, all sorts of community members together to, to to plan to plan actions like that. And so, one of the biggest things we're working on at the moment is is collating information. And we've we've we're on this process where we've we've submitted a, a whole bunch of freedom of information requests, 
So using legislation to force the universities to give us information about the interactions with weapons manufacturers. And so when we when we do compile this large amount of information, that will be one of the biggest ways we can help these university action groups launch is by having the information that's specific to them that they'll be able to use in, in actions and rallies and, and that, that sort of thing moving forward. Mm. And I guess, um, I mean, in terms of um, what um, Disarm University has found, is it actually, would you could... Could you say with kind of like great certainty um, that it's true that, you know, almost every university in Australia is actually has some kind or is forming ties or has ties already to some weapons manufacturer of some kind? Um, Or is it a bit or is there some universities that have more ties than others and some that have less so or maybe there might be universities in the category that are looking to kind of make ties? Yeah, we've been we've been blown away by what we've found just through these initial this initial stage of research, where every university has has got some dirt in this in this place. Some, yeah, there, many uh, um, have more than others, and sort of we're just learning that as well. But the what we've found really really challenging is that a lot of the universities have have um, not obliged with the freedom of information request process, and so they've they've purposefully dragged their feet through this process because they have a lot to hide. So that, that's really worrying as well. So as a, as a young network, that's, um, that's one of our, our biggest, our biggest um, targets at the moment is to, is to get through that process and, and get all the, all the information that we can. I suppose that would be an encouraging sign when they try and block the freedom of information request. We're like, oh, we've got a live one here. Definitely, definitely. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's inspired us and it's also um, allowed us to be able to bring new people on board to, yeah. to help with this process, yeah. So it's so it's a good sign, but it's, yeah, it's worrying as well. Yeah, and in terms of um, kind of broader support, because um, um, my understanding, a lot of these campaigns were kind of first started off um, by usually sort of some of the environmental collectives on campus or some of the other autonomous sort of unaligned left group, grassroots left um um, groups in on campuses. Um, what is um, since sort of Disarm University has started? What are some of the broad, broader res- support? Have you received kind of any kind of broader support um, beyond the students? Like for example, from the staff, um, the NTU, um, for example, um, and also what is sort of the relationship between uh, um, this and NUS? Yeah, so the the NTU have been really supportive, and in fact. Um, the the Sydney branch, for example, passed a motion um, endorsing the campaign and in, and endorsing the the targets of the campaign. And and we've we've seen a lot of NTU branches at, at different universities show interest in getting in contact and and that's a and that's a relationship that we're really looking forward to build on. And so that and that and that goes to show that that staff just as well as students are uh, uh, involved in these sorts of things and and, and really passionate about about the way things are heading and, um, and you know, and, and seeing the power in, in being able to change that. And so another, yeah, another group that's been really supportive, like you said, the NUS. And so they have a, they have a similar campaign called Books Not Bomb. And it's operating in the same space and, and the two campaigns sort of inform each other. And a lot of the, the groups are working, the groups that are formed are working with both campaigns. And so they're sort of inspiring each other and, and, grow, and, and being able to be collaborative and so it means that we've been able to share a lot of information as well and, and inspiration. And so, the, yeah, the, the relationship between this campaign and the NUS campaign is, is strong and collaborative. Hmm. I guess um, the other kind of thing 
I mean, the last kind of point I kind of want to um, bring out is maybe have a bit of a, a personal opinion of um, ask or a personal opinion of yourself. Um, why? What is sort of your political analysis on? Why do you think it's kind of the case that um, a lot of these universities are making deals with weapons manufacturers such as um, Lockheed Martin? Um, why do you actually think this is a trend, especially in the context of um, you know federal cuts um, to universities um, by the Turnbull government? Um, you know, do you think there's a, a particular political reason why um, you know universities are making deals with such private companies that produce weapons and bombs? Yeah, so I think this is a, a culmination of reasons. It really is the, the the combination of the corporatization of unis that we've seen over the last few decades, where where universities rely on private companies for funding for research, for, for this and for that. So it's a combination of that with the with the budget cuts and the funding cuts, where they where they're really doing it tough, being having all this money cut from their budgets and and having to look anywhere they can to get it. And so it's a it's a really toxic mix of those two things where, and they're they're desperate and anywhere anyone that has money or anyone that's able to to provide to provide funding for for what they're trying to do they're they're thinking about seriously and so that that that's why this is such a a tough thing is because the the universities are, are desperate and so they're hiding their tracks and they're and they're being really shady because because they they see it that it's in the, in that yeah that it's of limited options and so to combine the limited options with with some of the most unethical companies on the planet really um goes to show yeah how how this is all affected yeah Hmm. Um, I guess, okay, the last kind of comment I want to get from you is, so how can um, sort of listeners get involved in this campaign um, and find out more? So we're, we're quite active on, on Facebook and Twitter, and both of them were at Disarm Unis, D-I-S-A-R-M-U-N-I-S. And both of them as well, we have sign-up forms to, to get involved where you can yeah, you can sign up and, and let us know which uni you'd like to be involved with and we can we can link you into groups that are already active there or give you the resources that, that you'd be able to um, to start your own and to start meetings and, and, and really um, start this from the, the bottom up. Hmm. Right. I've also got a, an email address, disarmunis at protonmail.com. Right. Oh, yeah. That um that all sounds very good, Ed. Ed. So yeah, this um camp um this sounds actually like a really I, I think quite exciting um student led campaign. Um, it could potentially um not sure yet, but it could re- um you know rebuild the student movement, which is a bit which is a bit dormant at the moment. Um, and give something um give um student activists something to work with that could have the effect of um radicalizing a greater layer of students into activist politics than, than we've had um, before. Definitely, yeah. It's one of our big goals to, to draw in the long and strong history of student movements being against war and, and building up a, a movement to bring people in and, and gear people up from the, from the get-go. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Ed. Great. Thanks for having Good me. Good stuff. Catch you soon. Uh, yes, Ed Amam from Disarm Universities. Uh, you are on 3CR, this is Green Life Radio, and we're just getting towards the end of the show. Um, I'll just play a quick announcement, and then we will uh, maybe oh. just have a quick last... We could probably just have a song or something to end it off, because we haven't played a song in the program yet. True that. Alright, well, that being the case, uh, 
How about we play some Endless Summer by the Jezebels? I know that's an old favourite of yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for, uh, yeah, tuning in and stick around because uh, Beyond Zero Emissions is coming up in the near 